Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars pertaining to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2019. Episode 240, Distribution and Fulfillment, presented by Jason Walters, Mark Diaz-Truman, Brennan Taylor, and Christopher Tang. Published or by very small publishers in the retail stores. 
Hello, I'm Christopher Tang. I'm with DriveThruRPG in the Publisher Services Department. So uh, I'm the indie game slash small game guy, uh, but my job is similar to Mark's to take people who are uh, starting out in small, uh, or even wherever they were when I joined the company, and uh, to get them where they want to be, which in some cases is to still be small or still be a fan, but with a little more polish, and in some cases getting them to the higher tiers of uh, making money and whatnot. And more of my expertise is in digital distribution, so um, more focusing on that and how to use drive through RPG specifically, sort of the insider lore there, and a little bit of print-on-demand uh, for people who are looking to go that route. Uh, and as Mark said, uh, one of the things I like to do whenever I do a panel is to take a little bit of the temperature of the room uh, to see where y'all are at. And I'm going to say y'all because I'm from Georgia. Yes, thank you. Shout out to the South. All right, so uh, I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to ask y'all to, if it applies to you, please raise your hand so we can see where everyone here is at so we can provide the best possible advice uh, to people here. So first of all, I'm going to check Everybody up here is more on the role-playing side, although Indie Press Revolution certainly has board games. Not really. Oh, not really. No, we are pretty much exclusively. Really. Yeah. But the same principles of distribution, a lot of the same principles apply, and some of the bits and bobs I know in Mark's more recent Magpie games uh, apply. So let me just check. Raise your hand if you're more here on the board game side. Okay, that's about half the room, so we're going to make sure that we get some good physical distribution question and answer. And uh, just to double check, I'm going to ask everybody here is here for more of the role-playing side. Okay, about half the room, but we're going to make sure that we uh, hit the physical distribution pretty well for you board game folks. Um, now, how many people here uh, are still in the I'm writing, playtesting, uh, I haven't gone any further than that? Raise your hand. Okay, that's about a third of the room. Uh, I'm assuming people are further along. How many people here are looking to run a Kickstarter? Okay, that's, I would say, about 60% of the room. I'm, I'm repeating this, by the way, for the benefit of the, uh, the future podcast listeners. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we are recording this uh, for that in the future. So listen to the RPG Panelcast. Uh, subscribe to your podcatcher. Uh, the... Uh, so we've got some of you looking to do Kickstarter. I'm just going to double check. Who here has already done the Kickstarter for their game? Okay, that's, that's like 25% of the room. Good to know. Uh, so we will need to do some Kickstarter advice for those of you who are still looking to do it. Um, but some of you may be looking like, okay, now what do I do with this? Uh, so I think that's good in terms of taking the temperature of where everyone here is at, unless any of you had questions you wanted to ask the audience before we begin basics. No. I, I would actually like to know very briefly uh, why you all are here. So is there a person or two who would be willing to ask the, the, what has brought you to this room? Uh, yeah, just a couple here. Yes, I've uh, been publishing for about uh, 12 years, mostly through RPG. And, um, we want to take our books and really get into retail. So we want to go from digital to retail. How do we go from digital you know, experience publishing into real retail distribution? Yes. Other, yes, in the back. I'm here because I'm working on my first game. I plan to do a Kickstarter. And while there's a lot of information online, I'd like to hear from actual humans in front of me some other stuff about how this works, even the very basic stuff. Is there any other side? Never done this before, doing your first Kickstarter, want to know the human side. We are, we are humans, some of us up here. 
As far as you know. <laughs> yeah, so it's just me, and this is what I suspected. We have probably about the broadest range of, of people in this room. Um, and so with that in mind, we're going to turn over to Jason to explain the industry. So in tabletop gaming, distribution typically works in a three-tiered system. But there are some fourth tiers, and we'll go over that really briefly, too. Uh, first, of course, there's the publisher. That's you, in most cases. That's creating a product. The product then goes to a distributor. The distributor takes your product, plus the products of maybe 100 other publishers, and sells them to stores. Uh, some of this is done in various ways. Um, the advantage to this to the retailer is the retailer can only has to go to one place to find a variety of products. Uh, they don't have to run around looking for individual publishers to deal with. Um, there's also a fourth tier called a consolidator. Now, a consolidator is a distributor to distributors. So, in many cases, a large distributor and the largest in tabletop gaming is Alliance, which are also known as Diamond Comics. Um, won't deal with or can't deal with or doesn't have the time and resources to deal with small publishers. So they'll go to a consolidator. There are a variety of them in tabletop gaming. There's, is Impressions Marketing still called Impressions Marketing at this point? I believe it still is. Okay. Um, there's Impressions Marketing, there's PSI, there's Studio 2. Uh, these are essentially distributors that work with other distributors. They take a bunch of small publishers, they put their products together, they have a magazine often that will go out to retailers telling them to shop from the large distributors they shop from in any case. I know it's a little confusing. And then they sell to the distributor. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to consolidation, and if you guys are interested, are you interested? Should I talk more about that? Okay. So the advantage to consolidation is, is mostly that if you're a small publisher, a consolidator will talk to you. And it's very difficult to get a large distributor to talk to you, to get in the door. Um, the disadvantage is every step of the, the tiered system involves a percentage of the cover of the game, you know, the retail price of the game, going to that tier, right? So the retailers expect to pay anywhere from 45 to 50% of, of the cover price. So they're expect. Well, okay, I didn't phrase that well. They expect a discount of 45 to 50% off of the cover price. The distributor is going to expect to make 11 to 14% of the cover price off their sale to the distributor. And a consolidator will expect to make another 11 to 14% off that cover price to the distributor. So for some people, the economics of consolidation work. And for some people, the economics of consolidation don't work. Um, they often work best if you've done a successful Kickstarter, you've already shipped out to everyone, and your garage is filled with pallet support games, and your significant other is like, get this stuff out of my garage. Get it out of here. Then a consolidator can be very useful, for example. A consolidator takes this off your hands and turns it into money. It's maybe not as much money as you would like per unit sale. It can be as low as 28% of retail. Um, but, it, but, it, but, it's, but it's gone and it's out turning into money, which is better than you know, sitting in your garage. Um, just, just real quick to make this as transparent and clear as possible. If you publish a game that costs $10 in retail, so it's a small card game, costs 10 bucks. If you were to sell it directly to retail stores, you could offer a 50% discount, retail would be, be down for that, you would get $5 and then the retailer would sell it for 10. They would get their five after, after it goes to a consumer. 
If you go through a distributor, then you would sell it to the distributor and usually 60% off is, is pretty typical. Yeah, 39 to 42% yeah. so, so you would take like $4, then the distributor would sell it to the store for $5, pocket the dollar, and then the retailer would sell it for, for 10. And then finally, there's a consolidator, as Jason noted, you would sell it to the consolidator, and then you would sell it for 35% or 30% in some cases, and then the consolidator will sell it to the distributor for 60% off, and then the distributor will sell it to retailer. So that ends up with you getting three-ish dollars, consolidator gets a dollar, distributor gets a dollar, retailer gets five dollars. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, cool. Um, so I'm, I'm, just to be transparent, I'm not a huge fan of consolidation for any of you. I'm not a consolidator. But you need to know these things as you go in. Um, so there, with all this stuff said, uh, and, and Chris... Can you explain that? You said they take a cut, but you didn't really say anything other than why you're not a fan of consolidation. Because they take a cut, because I'm also a publisher as well. And, and it, 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 it's not that they're like terrible people or anything. It's that, it's that this additional slice of the pie can often be the difference between profitability and non-profitability, unless you've done it through Kickstarter, in which case the fans may have already paid completely to create your product, and concepts like profitability are, you know, it's a lot more flexible in that way. Um, there are also other ways to sell your stuff. Um, I, I'm going to hand it over to Chris in a moment to talk about print-on-demand, if those of you that are publishing books or cards, either one. Um, there is no reason that you shouldn't run your own websites and sell directly. Um, I had, some, I had somebody approach me with some questions about recent changes in state and local internet taxes, and they were not going to open a website specifically because they were frightened of it. Uh, if this is useful, I have actually spoken with my own CPA about this and had him do some research at some length. Uh, most of the states and municipal internet taxes have a threshold of they don't start collecting them until you sold. Fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars per year online. So, yeah, in, in that in that state or in that city, in some cases. So I wouldn't. And also, my CPA's pointed out that there's going to be a lot of legal questions about all this that will probably go to the Supreme Court. Well, it did go to the Supreme Court, but they'll probably go back, and there'll probably be legislation because it's too up in the air. So please don't be discouraged by any of that. Um, selling directly. Through your own website, keeping some of your stock on hand, even if it's with a distributor, uh, is a tremendously good idea. Please do not be discouraged from selling things directly on your own website. Um, also, going to conventions and selling things directly, you know, distribution aside, is an enormously good idea. So, just because you go into distribution, please don't be discouraged from selling your own work yourself, because you are the best salesman you will ever have. So with that, I think we're going to spend a minute kind of going down the line and talking about our individual experiences and lessons learned. But I want to emphasize something that Jason said, which is every level of this, you know, direct to retail, distribution, consolidation, through your web store, at conventions. As somebody who makes a living making games now, I can tell you, no single one of those categories is where I sell my products. I sell them at all levels. And the decision about what you go with in terms of distribution or consolidation is a business strategy decision. 
It's not necessarily a moral decision. I'm morally, uh, morally opposed to distribution. I know a couple of folks who feel they're morally opposed, I guess, but um, Tim Fowers, who's well-known for Burble Brothers and other board games and card games, uh, has basically set up his own backend distribution network for his games. And if you're as good at making games as him and you feel like you want to put in that work, I think Tim would tell you it's very profitable to do it directly, sell the retails directly through a backend thing on your website. However, the big lesson that I would like you to take away, and I'll use my time to speak to this, is you are not making games in any minute that you're selling games. That sounds obvious, but it's not. Right now, it is Friday morning. On a typical Friday morning, I meet with my staff to plan out what we are doing for the next week's work on games. I'm not doing that today, because I'm here at this convention. So that means that we are now behind, according to our usual schedule, one morning, one day, three days, on the work I would normally do. And so when you ask, why would you ever give up 60% of the profits, right, from or, you know, whatever it is from a given product, the answer is that I don't have time to do all those pieces that I would have to do to find retailers and manage those relationships with retailers and get my stuff all the way through the pipeline. The goal of working with a distributor as a partner, for me as a publisher, is to free up my time to make more cool shit. That's the goal of distribution. And so to that end, one of the reasons that we've chosen to work with a consolidator for our titles, Zombie World and Wizard Kittens, is that those are both card games. Zombie World's a role-playing card game, but it's a card game nonetheless. We think it will do very well in retail. It has a price point that does well in retail. And we believe that the consolidator will show us returns on that relationship because they will be able to take the distributors who would otherwise be unwilling to work with us but who would work with us on these particular products. My baby, the game I've worked on for the last seven years called Cartel, which is a Mexican narco-fiction powered by the apocalypse RPG, like Breaking Bad meets The Wire meets What's Not in Mexico, is not going into consolidation. There's no way that retailers are going to put a game like that on their shelves in large quantities. And so instead, I will work directly with the distributors that we work with directly, and then I'll sell it through my web store. We've already got a Kickstarter. That will be the primary way that those things get funded. And so what I encourage new publishers to do is to think critically early about your product. Where is this product going? Something like Bluebeard's Bride or Cartel, is a, they're, they're mature games, largely for people who already have a relationship with role-playing games. They are unlikely to do well in retail. That's okay, because I have all these other ways to make it work. And I think when we talk about distribution and fulfillment, what I wish I had known when I started was the role that these could play for certain kinds of products. Because if you're designing without a sense of your audience or business pipeline, you're going to find that you're always at odds. Trying to get cartel into retail stores or not having enough exposure for a game like Wizard Kittens, whatever you're doing, you're zigging when you should zag. And that's where I think people get into the most trouble. That will pass over to Brendan and talk about his experiences doing this trip. And then we'll get to questions at the end. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience as a uh, publisher uh, rather than as a fulfiller, because I'm going to let Jason continue to take that role. Um, the I'm, I'm even smaller scale than everybody else here at the table. Uh, my stuff is just me and my partner. We're the only ones who are producing things for our company, uh, although we do have other people who work for us as freelancers. 
but uh, we don't have a staff. We both have full-time jobs, and we're trying to produce games and distribute them at the same time. And so my time is even more restricted than Mark's as far as like what, what time I have to work on games versus what time I have to, uh, to sell things. And so that's one of the reasons I totally work with uh, IPR primarily, um, but also uh, the IGDN, which is a, uh, an association of uh, independent game designers um, who have some inroads into uh, distribution as well. Uh, they, our products actually are of a scale that will, the, you know, that IGDN is basically acting as a consolidator for us. Uh, in, in that situation. Um, what we do is, you know, we do Kickstarters and we do that to fund our games and then we generally uh, print a surplus and then run the surplus through uh, distribution and fulfillment. Um, and uh, I think that's probably a situation that a lot of the people in this room are gonna be in. Uh, so what, uh, what I would say is, you know, start looking for partners uh, before your Kickstarter is finished. Um, if, if you've already run a Kickstarter, I mean, obviously this is, you know, and you, you still have this step to take. Um, but if you are thinking about running a Kickstarter, think about how you're going to get these games out the door after your Kickstarter is over. Uh, and also work into your Kickstarter some buffer so that you can print extra games. You don't want to just fulfill to the people who back your Kickstarter. You want to have some uh, some games that you can then sell uh, on through distribution and through uh, through direct sales. Uh, conventions are another big part of our sales, uh, and we do partner with IGDN for that as well, well, because they run a table at conventions where they represent a lot of the members. Um, you have to pay into it, but it's considerably cheaper than paying uh, for your own uh, your own table. Especially at big cons like uh, Gen Con or Origins, where the tables are very expensive. Could you also speak a little bit to the uh, production cost issue? Yeah. Um, so on production costs, uh, <laughs> what what exactly? Like we have to keep costs down because it's going to get chopped. Yeah, up. absolutely. Yeah, we we do keep try to keep costs down because it's going to get chopped up. And one of the things that we do with that is uh, is find um, printers. You know, do do a lot of uh, printing. Uh, we, we actually print, print domestically. Uh, we're RPG publishers, so we are able to do that. I think a lot of board game publishers, that's not really an option, um, just because domestic printing of components is too expensive for most board games. Um, but we print domestically, and uh, we try to keep our costs to roughly one seventh of the cover price for uh, per unit cost on printing. Uh, because of the, that, that's basically our formula for how to make a profit. Uh, we we want to be able to make a profit even if we're selling through consolidation. So uh, you've got to make sure that your, your unit, per unit cost is coming in less than that, uh, that uh, 28% sometimes <laughs> amount that you're gonna get. So yeah, yeah. You had a question? Yeah. Um, does the distributor also handle the warehousing, or is that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's, let's repeat the question for the panel. Yeah, so the, the, the question was, does the distributor handle the warehousing? And the answer is yes. But 
lot of distributors will charge you uh, pallet fees for that. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and uh, the only one that, I don't know, does IPR charge pallet fees for everybody? We do not charge pallet fees for everybody. We charge pallet fees when your insurable costs reach a certain amount. Uh, typically $30,000 with us, then we start charging pallet fees based on insurable amounts to help cover the insurance costs. But below that amount, we don't charge any pallet fees. But we're unusual with that. It's also a good time to know that distributors don't just have one relationship with publishers. The two most common relationships are purchase and, and flooring. So if purchase, like we work with Universal Distribution and Asma UK for Canada and the UK respectively, they just buy games from us. So they say, well, I have 100 copies of Zombie World, we tell them, cool, it's going to cost X dollars. We send them the games, they send us X dollars, we're done. Like, they, it's their responsibility to sell those games. Our relationship with ACD, which is one of the big five distributors, is a flooring relationship. They say, we'll take 100 copies of Zombie World, we ship them, and then as they sell them, they tell us, we sold 10 this week, and we then get the money at that time. Now, why would you prefer one or the other? Well, the purchase is nice because we just get the cash and we're done. But the flooring allows ACD to push us much harder. They know that they've got the product in their warehouse, they can take on much more product than they would normally because they're not paying for it yet. And then that leads to hopefully more sales of that thing. So having a flooring relationship or a consignment relationship as it's sometimes called is a really great way to have more of your games in the distributor's warehouse, but the distributor needs to feel like you're worth that time. And I will say that at my scale, that's pretty rare. I don't usually do flooring arrangements because I can't afford it. So. Um, before I hand, um, hand things over to Chris, uh, I'd like to touch on something Brendan said really quickly, uh, which is really, in my opinion, the purpose of doing a Kickstarter is to create the additional stock to then later sell. So when you think about your Kickstarter project that you're going to do, don't think of it in terms of, I'm going to make what I need to make to kind of send to the backers and then, hey, I'll have a couple thousand dollars, that's great. Think of it in terms of making as much of the product as you reasonably think on the outside you could possibly sell. Then turning that over to somebody to sell for you. Because that's where you will actually make the money on the project. Yes? On this one, one of the questions that I have is um, on the costing, and, and I actually use Studio 2 for, for the costing. Right. Um, we've got the little spreadsheet, we can work it all out. But there was a demand from our last Kickstarter by the retailers to say, is there a retailer level? And then you get the issue of a, a cost differential between what the backers are going to get, because they want a discount, the, the, the direct backers, and the retail backers where you suddenly expose that price difference. How do you balance that equation when you're going to multiple channels? Do you mean when you're, uh, no, uh, uh, retailer tiers on a Kickstarter are, are pretty common? Yes. Right, right. So I, I don't quite understand your question. I can't figure out how to get the costing between the discounts. Oh, that's, that's easy. Oh. Would you like to answer that? I, I can. Okay. Yeah, I help, a lot, I help coordinate a lot of smaller RPG publishers, at least in the early stages of their Kickstarter, because there are tools on drive through for promoting your Kickstarter and whatnot. Yeah. Um, well, the answer is usually retailers have to order 10 copies. Like, that's how you make that. Retailers don't get to order one copy cheaper than the, the customer backers do. Uh, retailers need to order a certain number. Uh, you should be thinking about transparency with your customers about the prices, especially up front, because that means when you communicate openly about 
during the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter updates and all that, that if prices change for some reason, such as if international taxes change. Um, because, well, I mean, none of us are in Congress, right? None of us are the diplomats from the European Union. We don't control. Okay, well, thank you, thank you, Senator. But you don't get to decide by yourself what the taxes are. That's a collective thing, and nobody in this room can decide to change that. We are all, you know, or paper prices, not even government decisions, right? Things change. Um, so that's how you balance out making sure, even though retailers are paying less per copy in a Kickstarter, is you make them order a minimum number. Uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what DriveThru does? Because it's pretty valuable to people doing card games and, and role-play games. Absolutely. And now it's my turn to talk about what I'm here for. Thanks, Jason. So, uh, yes, I'm with DriveThru RPG. We're the world's largest RPG download store. Uh, in addition to that, we have several other uh, branded websites, DriveThru Comics, DriveThru Cards, Drive, uh, Wargame Vault is actually part of us. We also manage the DMs Guild and a few other things. Um, but I think for the board game people, probably drive through cards and our print-on-demand card services are more important. And for the RPG people, our uh, digital RPG marketplace, drive through RPG, as well as our print-on-demand books. So, uh, as Jason said, you uh, should probably open up your own store. But you should also distribute with drive through RPG. Part of why you should do that, uh, even if you don't spend a ton of time on our site, is that we don't charge any fees either to be a publisher or to sell your book. We only charge when you make a sale. Uh, so any sales you make with us, although we take a cut, it's still money that you didn't have before. Uh, we also provide print-on-demand services. Uh, if, you have, if you are at a point where, as a publisher, and there are a number of publishers, especially ones who did not do a Kickstarter, who don't have that giant, you know, whatever of money to take that first step. Maybe you didn't feel that you had the fan base, or maybe you tried a Kickstarter and it didn't come together for the minimum price you had set, um, and you need to scale down your ambitions a little bit, which is okay. Everybody starts somewhere. Nobody, nobody is born with a huge audience. This isn't the Truman Show uh, that you know of. And uh, I'm definitely not the character. Anyway, the point is that uh, you know, for some people, that's their first step before they can get to the stage of a Kickstarter, they need to go through a time period where they're increasing the audience for their game through either digital distribution or digital plus print-on-demand. And doing print-on-demand is a, sort of a lower stakes uh, version of doing printing because you can correct it later and then you don't have a thousand copies with 10 typos in them. Uh, you have 20 copies that you can then replace in the next iteration. Uh, so, uh, digital distribution is its own thing. Uh, it is much, there's much fewer uh, steps, obviously. There's the self-distribution of digital, where it's just you and the customer, and you've got your costs of maintaining, uh, you know, PayPal fees or what have you, whatever uh, point of sale security you're using. Uh, but if you go through us, then there's the chunk we take as a digital distributor. There's other digital distributors out there, but I'm only going to talk about mine. Uh, so, well, that joke didn't land. All right, so, for those of you listening on the, on the panel cast, um, so, uh, it's a really good idea to have digital distribution. Uh, I have had people talk to me about piracy, but the truth is, if your game exists, then it's pirated. Even if it only exists physical, it's been pirated. There's a server somewhere with a scan 
a high-quality scan of your game. So you might as well sell it for a reasonable price and let people have it in the form that they want it. Uh, also, we, you know, in terms of print-on-demand, that's another thing in terms of scaling, in terms of where you're at, whatnot. So in addition to the uh, wearing the hat where I have to worry about taxes for $50,000 worth of sales in Kentucky, uh, I'm personally working on a sort of a personal project for an RPG, and part of that is both you know, sort of personal creative fulfillment, but also to kind of see what my own clients are going through. And one of the things I'm already planning on, for instance, is that all the interior art will be black and white, because black and white printing is cheaper, even in print-on-demand, significantly cheaper. So sometimes the prices determine the form. Uh, and that's something to, you know, that goes back to a lot of the questions Mark was saying about look at the prices up front when you're creating your project. Yeah, so the, I think the number one thing to keep in mind as a publisher is that you work in the entertainment industry. And I say that and it sounds obvious, but it's not obvious. I think probably for the first seven years that I worked in games, I believed I was an artisan, right? Like I was a guy who made things, and I built an audience of the things I made, and people were following that. That is not true. Of our projects, we, we just finished a project called Root, which is a license from Leader Games based on their board game Root. And it is our most successful Mac by Games project to date. We raised $600,000 on Kickstarter and had nearly 7,000 backers. Of the 7,000 people who backed a Kickstarter with us before, only 10% backed Root. That means for our single biggest, most explosive title that we have put together, only a small fraction of the, quote, audience we had built before followed us. Now, that's not to say that our reputation, our our professionalism, like, if you go on a message board and you say, Magpie Games make a root, is that good? There will be people who pop up and are like, oh, they, they do this well, they do that well, they, they're people you can trust, they deliver my books. That, that stuff is, is irreplaceable. But I think the idea that you're going to build an audience that's going to explode is, is just not accurate. What's going to happen is you're going to find a product that connects with an audience in a serious way. And because of that, it means that you've got to think every step along the way. Okay, if Zombie World is going to be a hit, where will it be a hit? It's a card-based role-playing game, so we knew the Kickstarter would be a struggle. It's not a thing people that leaps to mind, oh, I, I just always wanted a card-based role-playing game. But we believed that if we got into retail, we would see a response in retail with Zombie World. That was our, that was our hope. And we're still like six months out from knowing whether that worked or not. And so part of your job with District of Fulfillment, I think, is to figure out what is the path this product is going to take. So when Chris talks about print on demand, it's like we know this product is not going to go into retail. We know that we don't want to do a Kickstarter for us. It's going to take up all this time. But if we have a cool thing and we can get it printed, then maybe we can see if there's a response. And if there is a response, we'll come back and we'll do something cool with it. But your job is to take distro fulfillment and treat it as part of the whole, part of what you're doing with each individual product, and think about where that product's going to end up. Any final thoughts before we go to some questions? No, we should get questions. So yeah. questions. Question time. Uh, can you give me some of the numbers on the drive through RPG and all that? Like, uh, how much cut do you take? Do you um, consign it yourself and ship it, or do Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a pretty quick breakdown. So there are two forms of accounts on DriveThruRPG, exclusive versus non-exclusive. And the major differences are digital fulfillment. So if uh, you are exclusive, you can have it for digital sale on our site and your own personal website, but you couldn't sell digitally on a competitor website such as Amazon. 
Uh, however, under exclusive, you can sell physically wherever you want. So you could say, oh, my digital is on drive-through, but you know, I sell on physically on Lulu and on Amazon and physically all these other places. Uh, so uh, the percentage breakdown, if you're exclusive on drive-through, then you get 70% and we get 30%. Now for the print-on-demand, the print cost has to be paid first, and then the 70-30 happens after that. So it's on the margin, not on the, on the gross. Uh, for non-exclusive, so you can sell digitally wherever you like, it's then 65-35. And then there's other benefits as well. We have an internal system uh, that's called PPP, uh, Publisher Promotion Points. Man, tough ground. Um, so, uh, Publisher promotion parts are how we manage on-site promotion. So if you ever just go to the front page of drive-through, you will see things like the deal of the day, featured products. The way you get into those is our publisher promotion points, which you get for free just for being a publisher uh, on our site, and exclusive publishers get more than non-exclusive publishers. Uh, speaking of which, if there's anybody out here who is planning on distributing their game on drive-through RPG, either through print-on-demand or whatever, whether you're doing a small card game as a board game person, or you're doing a digital as an RPG person, create a publisher account as soon as possible. This is an insider trick. Here's why it is a trick. You get publisher promotion points from sales with us, but you also get an automatic amount every month, even if you haven't published anything. So create your account now, start getting the publisher promotion points for free because you know you're going to be a publisher eventually. Okay, uh, so that's the numbers breakdown. Does, did that answer your question? So is it only print on demand, it's not uh, pre-printed anything? That is correct. Okay, so let me break down that process in a little more detail. Uh, so we have two different uh, print on demand fulfillment houses. We use Lightning Source for books and we use, I can't remember, uh, ODT, which I don't remember what it stands for. Uh, for cards, and our card handles cards of various different sizes, European bridge, whatever, as well as small posters. Uh, basically anything that we do that isn't a book. So people make an order, it goes to the fulfillment house, and then they ship it out. We don't have like the directory warehouse or anything like that. I missed the non-exclusive breakdown. Like what's different about it? I guess what's different is you can do all those things. Did you give a number percent? Yeah, 6535. Sorry. All right, uh, we've got several other questions. Did that answer your question, though? Are we good now? Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah, all right, cool. Uh, you in the back. How does quality of print on demand compare to uh, printing in bulk at a printer and um, distribution? Well, I think it's pretty good. Uh, but you want to answer Yeah, Jason, why don't you? Brennan, actually, yeah, you might have the best answer there. Yeah, I actually use both. So, um, I find Lightning Source is a little trickier as far as doing quality control. You really have to uh, print it several times to make sure you've got uh, your file done correctly. Other printers will work a little closer with you and make sure your file is better the first time out. Uh, that's generally how I how I found it. I will say um, a couple of things though to bear in mind if you're doing it at least through drive-through as opposed to a direct account Lightning Source, which you can do for offset printing and whatnot. In which case you'll have a direct account. Uh, especially for first-timers, you can send the files to us at DriveThru to review before you upload them to Lightning Source, and we can help give you pointers or touch it up to ensure a higher level of success and make sure you're going to get it through. Obviously, you still need to prove it. 
Um, also, if your prints come, like if a customer is complaining, like my proof came out bad, another advantage of our print-on-demand, depending on where you are as a publisher, is you can direct them to our customer service to work on getting a replacement uh, if it turned out wrong. I, I think it's valuable to know that offset printing is like a, a different game than print-on-demand. So we have a couple of titles that exist in print-on-demand. We print them 40 at a time, 50 at a time. It's wonderful. And then I have some products like Masks, which is our superhero role-playing game, where it is an offset print run. We have specially selected that paper, those end papers, that material for the cover. Like there, again, it's, it's about what you want this product to do. So with print-on-demand, black coverage is especially difficult. If you're doing like big pages of blacks, then it just, print-on-demand just has really struggles with it. Um, but if you're doing stuff, especially like old-school dungeon stuff with you know, uh, uh, line pictures and stuff. The, the print on demand might be the aesthetic you're looking for. And the fact that you can order 20 or 30 at a time is cool. Yeah, um, I actually work for a self-publishing company called Book Baby. Uh, we do POD and offset. Um, we also have distribution as well. So um, we are, in my opinion, much higher quality than my source. So if you're looking for a POD printer, and there's, there's a bunch, right? Like, so we yeah. we, uh, we use Lightning Source because we're grandfathered in or under their old program uh, that was still around in 2011 where individual publishers could just sign up. Um, but I think that, yeah, the goal here is for you to find somebody that you like working with, you like the paper, you like the way the books come out, uh, you feel like they've got good customer service. You're looking for all those pieces, not just one. Other questions? Yeah, Alistair. For example, I have seen some Kickstarters that have like the three options, like the print on uh, the two options, the print on demand service, and also the bulk print, the normal printing on shipping. How is that match? You do like the offset printing in China or something, and they also offer the files as print on demand. And what would be the advantage of the system? I have especially seen some of the Onyx Patmans. Uh, yeah, I especially know about what Onyx Path is doing there, but uh. <laughs> I, I have I have all of their collector's edition stuff in my warehouse. So, uh, so my my general rule of thumb would, would be, and I think this is kind of a continuation of the last question, right? Basically, is if you're looking at a black and white, reasonably small, say six by nine book, print on demand is a great way to go. Uh, if you're looking at a full-color hardcover, 8.5 by 11, or something that you really want high production values on, say like Bluebeard's Bride, which has really high production values, you want to go for an after-offset print run, that's going to mean no less than 500. And even at that price, the prices aren't great. You really want to be thinking in terms of 1,000 to 2,000 or more. Yeah, I, I actually don't. I mean, I, I think I appreciate what Chris and his team does for print on demand. I know there's a lot of publishers that work with it. But I think that if you can get to 400 or 500 backers at a print level, which again, that, that is an accomplishment to get to the point where 500 people have ordered it, you should do an offset print. That's, in my opinion, that's almost always better because your product will hold up better in retail, it will it will stand out compared to other products, and you have the money to do it, to do the Kickstarter, you sold those at full retail price. That said, this goes back to the thing we said earlier, if you are thinking about going to retail, then you should build your product around being in retail. If you're not thinking about being in retail and you're selling through drive-throughs system, uh, think about Kevin Crawford, the creator of Stars Without Number and Godbound. Kevin does pretty good doing his print-on-demand products for Godbound through drive-through. That is his business model, and he knocks it out of the park for those products. So I think again, 
And the key here is understand the cost, but always build your products, not your company. If your company can pursue three different strategies or three different products, but build your product's profile according to what you want it to do. I would never put up a product on drive-through, or sorry, on Kickstarter, and make offset printing instructional. Period. Ever. Because if you're not pricing for offset for minute one, then the thing you're putting up in front of customers in minute one and minute ten is different. When do most people look at your project? Minute one or minute ten? Minute one. The first day is where the most number of people are going to see your product. That's your opportunity to put your best foot forward. So if you're doing print on demand, do it proudly on minute, on minute day one and do it proudly on day ten. If you're doing offset, plan for it and do it proudly on day one and proudly on day ten. Don't switch up midstream. Uh, so I, I want to answer a little bit more because I think we haven't really touched on uh, your original. We've had some excellent points, but your original question had sort of a specific heart to it that I think I'm going to get at, which is why would you put into your Kickstarter back at this level for digital, back at this level for a print-on-demand coupon, and back at this level for offset? Why would you do that? So I'm going to have two uh, comparisons here. One is uh, a very large, one is very small. Uh, Onyx Path, which you brought up, which bakes into their Kickstarter. Here's where you back for offset, but here's where you get a print-on-demand coupon. And another company, which is Nerd Burger Games, which is a smaller company. They do uh, capers, which are one of Bamsey's super game. Uh, so when Nerd Burger does Kickstarters, you only get a print-on-demand coupon. There is no offset. And he may do it differently in the future, but that's his business model so far. Uh, you only get an offset coupon. And what that coupon is, is you send it through the drive-through system to the backer, and then the backer has to pay for the printing and shipping. Now, and you as the producer, you have to pay for you know, the writing, the art, the layout, you know, all that stuff. Um, but you don't, then don't have to worry about the warehousing, you don't have to worry about the delivery. It also insulates you from cost changes. So let's say that you do your Kickstarter based on, okay, we're not going to do an offset, we're just going to do these print-on-demand coupons, and then my print-on-demand prices go up at drive-thru, which they're about to, uh, and it does happen sometimes, um, inflation and all that. So you've insulated yourself as a producer from those print-on-demand costs going up by having that coupon. Instead, those costs on an individual level are borne by the backer, and they may not think it's that much, like, oh, it's 20 cents more than I thought, but you as the producer, if you were paying all of that for every copy at 20 cents more, that balloons exponentially, right? So that's an answer from like the small publisher, he's insulating himself from that 20 cents becoming you know, $1,000 of like eating all of his profit. Uh, so why would Onyx Path do it that way? Well, when Onyx Path does their Kickstarters, they have absolutely calculated for the cost of their offset print. That's, that's baked into their numbers, including all the special editions and whatnot that they want to do. Right? They've, already, they've already factored that cost into it. So why sell an offset coupon as well? Well, for the same reasons that a small publisher would do, which is that some people, they, they know they're going to do a print-on-demand version of their books because Onyx Pass always does that in addition to the offset. Uh, which helps protect them from uh, stock being out of stock, actually. Uh, and also, depending on your printer, the files may not be that different, so it may not be that big of a cost to print the print on demand. Uh, so they protect themselves from that. From their perspective, the people who bought uh, digital or digital plus a print on demand coupon, they're just pocketing that money because they were going to make those files anyway. 
and then they can use that money to then put towards the offset print without cutting into those costs. So that is why a company, those are two different perspectives on why you would have these offset coupons. I think for maybe some smaller publishers, if you are thinking, I don't, or, or you know, maybe I won't get to 500 backers, maybe I won't get to 1,000 or 2,000 offset, that may be a bet. The Nurburger model of I just sell offset coupons and that insulates me from cost changes in the print-on-demand, that is at least an option to consider, depending on where you're at. And that's probably a different answer for everyone in this room. But the split run is partially because Octopath has huge Kickstarters. So they, they can manage do it splitting it up because if the offset run services 40% of their clients and the coupon services 20%, that 20% is not 40 people, it's like 400 people. So a lot of this is when you're looking at Kickstarters as models, I've done a lot of Kickstarter consulting, I've raised over $2 million on Kickstarter. Um, I think you really need to be looking at other products like yours. So if you're, if you're selling, do you have an Path audience? Do you have an Path IP? No, then who the fuck cares what they're doing? Okay. Like, look for products that look like your products. Which, and which is why doubly true for board and card games, which is a really rough market for stuff that doesn't fit the mold. Right, which is why I brought up Nerdburger, because yeah. they're a smaller company. That's, That's why, why I brought up Nerdburger, because they're a smaller company, company and so what, what they are doing maybe applies to more people in this room. Absolutely. Do, do we have any questions from those of you who are involved in board games? Maybe. Yes, you sir. You said, um, you mentioned something about prices that work well in retail. And I'm curious what their, those prices are um, that you're targeting for MSRP. I don't, in my opinion, there is no way to price games other than what the market will pay for them, which is already established. So, what is that? Well, it depends on the title, right? So, like, if you're if you're familiar with Spirit Island, right? Like, Spirit Island is a title that is a big co-op game. It has a lot of little pieces in it. It's got hours and hours and hours of play. I think it's priced at 80 bucks retail. It's an old price for Spirit Island. You can't price Spirit Island at 100 dollars. It just won't sell. It's not. It's not a hundred dollar game, more or less. By the same token, if you're looking at a product like Coo, right? Coo's like 15 bucks or whatever. You can't sell Coo for 30. Right. So if you make it seven dollars, you're not going to sell a lot more copies of Coo. The right price for Coo is 15 dollars. So it's 30. It's again, right? Like it's not just that. It depends a lot on. Does this game come with dice or no dice? Does it have tokens or no tokens? Is it just cards? How big is the box? Everything that you're doing is signaling something. And when you sell a game for eighty dollars, what you're promising is that that game is going to provide a substantial experience for the players. Multiple find a comparable game. Find a comparable game, but pay attention to the breaking points. And this is true for RPGs too. If you're selling a black and white six by nine book, what just twenty bucks is. It depends, it depends on how many pages and how many pieces are, but, but yeah, 10 or 20, depending. Uh, I, I may disagree with you on this one, but not for the board games, which I don't know enough about to, to really comment on the price. That's, that's fair. I, I, I think for board games, it's, it's, I, that was my point. The board games is like really hard and fast. If you sell me a $40 board game, I have expectations about the play length, its style, the components of the box. Actually, if I, if I buy a $40 hardcover book from you, there's, there's a pretty wide variety of role playing games. I've found with the sorts of games that we sell that um, uh, generally the fans don't balk at some price range for even a fairly small 6x9 black and white book. The price range can be anywhere from 15 to 30 because they know they're not actually paying by volume. When it comes to the sort of storytelling and small press role playing game books that we sell, 
they're paying for the experience, and then the experience can come in a fairly small package. But that's probably an exception in the tabletop gaming market. I, I wonder if it is. I mean, the rule, I call it the Pauletta rule, because Nathan Pauletta is a well-known yeah. indie designer in the story community. community. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. Uh, he, he said once, to, I think on Twitter, uh, people will pay much more than you think for things they want, and they will not buy a thing no matter its cost if they don't want it. And that, again, sounds really obvious, but I have games that I think are great games. I have priced very aggressively, and very few people have bought them. And I have games that we charge more money than I thought we could get, and we sold out. And so it's really about how much do people want it. Now, in board games and card games, the problem is substitutes. So if you look at a game and you're like, this game is like Coup, but Coup costs $15, and this game costs $30, and they basically do the same thing, then I'm going to buy Coup. That's not a thing RPG people generally do. Yeah. They don't say, well, Monster X and Cartel are both about these like really specific PvP scenarios. And like, yeah, one's queer and one's Mexican, but like, uh, this one costs 15, that one costs 20, so I'll take the 20. Role players say, I'll have both, please, because they want to collect them all, get them all, have, have the big broad spectrum of games at their disposal. So board gamers have like this physical space problem where they don't want to, they have one room in the house that they've been allowed to fill with board games. <laughs> board game comes in and board games got to go out, right? But role players are like putting those books on their shelves and proud of their collection. I guess I'm trying, I'm trying to test to find out, should I price it at 20, 25, or 30? That's uh, it. It's just those three options. I would say, okay. I, what, how would I go about that? Okay. okay. Um, this, this is, is uh, a process that is both annoying and fun. Uh, here's what you have to do, okay? And this, you know, we've been talking a lot about the costs, but what you're going on is about market research, actually. So what you're gonna have to do is you're going to have to spend time, probably in websites, but also maybe your, your favorite local gaming store, uh, just going down and saying, what is this? How much does it cost? Uh, this game, you know, especially if you're in the board game world, this box is this kind of experience. It comes with this many bits or art or what have you. This box comes with this many bits, you know, provides this kind of experience, has this many bits, has this many whatever. You have to then try to find as many, this is sort of, we're trying to get into business school kind of stuff. What are your closest competitors, okay? What are the games that when people look at the shelf that they are comparing you to and the questions they're going to ask themselves because you need to give a comparative advantage. Now, that advantage might be like, well, this is like Ticket to Ride, but it's a $10 pack of just a couple cards, so you can take it with you anywhere, and it's cheaper and whatnot, but it provides a similar experience. That's my comparative advantage. Or you could say, well, this game is like Arkham Horror, but instead of being themed with Cthulhu, it's uh, themed with like 1930s, you know, pulp heroes or what have you. So your comparative advantage is your different theme, which will appeal to some people. It's my opinion that you cannot get a comparative advantage on price in the board game industry. And, and the reason is because I think that the number of good board games has reached such a fever pitch that it is impossible to say that you can spend five fewer dollars and get a less, slightly less experience and be satisfied with that transaction. So in the case of, of and I will say this for RPGs too, we price our games as high as we think we can get away with pricing them. And we have never gone broke selling games for too much money. 
So when we look at Blue Ridge Pride, Jason pointed out it is a, a unique book. Foil, foil in light cover, metallic it It's a fantastically beautiful book. Yeah, and we charge $50 for it, and it's 96 pages. Um, now, what is the real price of that game? Well, that's like five years of design, production, arts. We spent thousands of dollars on art. I, I, it's hard for me to say exactly, and I respect the one-seventh rule. Like we try to keep the production costs down, but the bottom line is we've sold that many copies of Blue because people want Blue Ridge Pride. If we had priced Blue Ridge Pride at $40, I believe I would have sold about the same number of copies, right? So part of it with boarding card games is, if you're saying $30, you're making me a promise. I'm gonna get $30 of value out of this game. If you have a hit like Wingspan or Root or something, whatever price you set is too low, you probably could set it high, but you don't know in advance you have that kind of hit. So are you, do you believe enough in your game to price it at 30? If you don't believe in that game, don't make it at all. If you do believe in it and you're wrong, that's called being in the entertainment industry. If you, if you believe in it and you're right, then congrats, you price it at the right price. A strategy yeah. that I used for that because I just designed a board game. I just started on Kickstarter on Sunday, but I built my own prototype and I played it a lot before that with other people. What I did is I went to like different meetup groups with people who were like really into tabletop gaming, and I said, "How much do you think this should retail for? What would you pay for this?" And after they've played it, they know the experience, and you ex you know explain to them, "I ex I expect to offset print or have good quality like this game." Then they're like, oh, well, then I, you could sell it for this. You could get this for it. I disagree with that method and think it will lead you to the wrong path. People do not play a game and then buy it. They buy it and then they play it. So when you ask people who have played a game, what would you pay for this game? You're asking people who already, would, in the future, will have bought the game what they want got for it. What I want to know is, what will you pay for the game when I tell you about it and describe it to you and show it to you on the shelf? And boarding card game people are extremely discriminating and role players are... Not for <laughs> <laughs> We're gluttons. I have one quick question on the PPPs. I've got a squillion of them. Um, and I actually don't know how to spend them. I've never figured out the most effective way, uh, particularly to, back to help with a Kickstarter, to how to spend those points. Sure. All right, right here's, here's what, what you need to do. do. Okay. First of all, the most effective use of your PPPs, uh, sort of pound for pound, is uh, the deal of the day. Because things sell better on drive through when they're on the front page. The deal of the day gets you on the front page right at the top. So, choose a product, put it in for the deal of the day. So we're running short on time here, so let's, let's wrap up with maybe one final thought from each panelist on things folks should keep in mind. Chris, you want to start real quick and just give our folks one last thing before we close out? Uh, sure. Uh, I just want to say, I suppose, if you're thinking about distribution, I think we've thrown a lot of information at you, and uh, it will seem overwhelming, and that's because it is. Because if you're a game designer, then you are, as Mark said earlier, an artist. You're an artist, you're a, you're a creator, whether it be board or role-playing games, um, and now you're starting to interact with the business side. So business is a whole other world. And we realize this is intimidation, intimidating, and congratulations to all of you for, for actually thinking about it and coming to a panel like this at a more creative convention like Metatopia, and we're glad to help you with that. Um, so, you know, you've probably been designing games since you were playing games, because that's how that kind of brain works. 
but you may have not been thinking about the business. So this will feel intimidating, but I hope that uh, we've helped demystify it a little bit. And it's only intimidating because you're only just now starting. Uh, project your costs out as best as you can, with as much detail as you can when you get involved in these projects. That will really make the difference between, a lot of times, between uh, uh, success or modest success and, and failure. So really try to keep all the financial factors in mind, including all these percentages with distribution we've been talking about. Uh, and you will have a much greater chance of success. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go off. Oh, I'm going to say, uh, follow up on that, just say, yeah, think about production. Um, design is, is one thing, but production is an entirely different animal. So gotta be thinking about that as soon as you start talking about money of any kind. Um, I, I want to note that every, every one of these people on this panel has helped me immensely in one arena of this process and they have been incredibly generous with me and teaching me how to do games, how to make games, how to make money making games. And that's generally been my experience in the industry. Almost everybody is excited to help you because our enemy is not each other, it's apathy. The number one thing people do when they don't buy a role-playing game is not buy a different role-playing game. They just don't participate at all, right, in tabletop games. So we are a big community of relatively friendly people. Please come talk to us. Please let us know how we can help you. We're happy to do so. But please actually listen to the advice because we've been here before and it actually matters. We'll save you a lot of heartache. Uh, and letting go of killing your darlings is hard, but it's worth it if you can really do this for real. So thank you all very much. Let's round of applause. Thank you, the audience.